This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Duane, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. But in the middle of the night, Samson came out from the city. He tore off the gates and carried them. Likewise, our Redeemer rising before day came free from hell and also destroyed the very gates of hell. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon they delivered. This message was by Pope Gregory the Great and delivered between 590 and 604. This episode is a little bit special. This episode, we're going to have Dwayne co-hosting with me instead of uh, Joel. Joel, uh, he just had a baby. Him and his wife just had a child. We're very excited for them. It's a big deal and very special moment. So he is not going to be with us this week, but Dwayne will be. And Dwayne uh, is a very big podcast name. We're very excited to have him. He is the host of the Bar Podcast, Biblical and Reformed. He also hosts the Sidebar Podcast. He runs the Bar Network, which it does very well. And he also helps produce Just Thinking Podcast, which has been number one on the Apple Podcast podcast charts lately. So Dwayne, we're very excited that you can come on. And why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself for those who have not heard of you? Uh, man, first, uh, you know, first thing is I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus Christ alone. Um, and I am the husband of one wife, father of four. And uh, between that and regular work, I run a podcast network. And I'm super excited to be on Revive Thought. Big fan of the show. Love what these guys are doing. Uh, a little nervous, but I'm excited to be here. You're going to do great. You you have been a big supporter of Revive Thoughts. You uh, had us on your show uh, back in December. That helped us out a lot, get the word out. But we've also interacted with other shows in your network. We've had some speakers come on from Guys with Bibles, which is a part of the Bar Network. So we feel like a close kinship with you guys. But even more than that, people don't know this. Uh, this is kind of behind the scenes, but I think it's important. And people need to hear it that uh, Dwayne sent us some speakers who came and were on the show. They were all really talented. Some of them are in our regular lineup now. And that helped a lot. It was a behind the scenes thing. You did didn't get any shout outs or praise for us per se. It was no, uh, there was no marketing angle in it for you guys. It was just you helping us out. And that was a really big deal. So when we were talking about having a co-host come on, you were one of the first names we thought of because you've just done so much to help revive thoughts and behind the scenes stuff. And we really just wanted to have you on as a way to say thank you and let others know about just the, the things you've done to help us out with this show. I could imagine, man. I was so happy to do so. And, and, you know, one thing I love about what I do is the network side, not just with my network per se, but just connecting with really good people, man. And, and people that I connect with, I always try to see if I can bring value to them. So it was definitely a pleasure to do that. All right. So we highly recommend you guys go and check out Dwayne and the Bar Network. But we're going to get on with the normal format for Revive Thoughts. And if you're a normal Revive Thoughts listener, you know this was a little bit of a special introduction. But if you have never checked us out before, this is not how we normally introduce the show. And I highly recommend you go check out one of our sermons by Bonhoeffer, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, or one of the many other great speakers we've, we've highlighted. And that way you'll understand that this is a little bit of a different way to open the show. 
Now, let's get on with the speaker for this week, Pope Gregory the Great. And, and I would like to mention that Pope Gregory the Great did not originally go by the name Pope Gregory the Great. Back in his day, he was Pope Gregory, and they added the Great about 400 years later. But I think as you listen to his sermon and you hear this episode, you are going to think to yourself, this guy, he really was the Great. Gregory the Great was born in Rome in 540 AD. He was born in Rome, but the Roman Empire had already fallen 70 years before. So he came from a family of former leaders and popes, but he was raised in the ruins of the former empire. If you've ever seen a post-apocalyptic movie or any movie where the world has ended, you always see like these burnt out cities, these destroyed towers, maybe skyscrapers have fallen, bridges, and there's always just something kind of mesmerizing and beautiful but scary and eerie to me about seeing these things. Maybe even if you've once gone into an old house or maybe visited a kind of an abandoned part of something, there's just something about it that's so interesting but odd and just a little bit... It just leaves an impression on you, right? Well, this would have been the world that Gregory the Great literally grew up in, where he was born and where he lived his early childhood days across the street from him. Literally across the street was the old Roman palace. It was decrepit, fallen in, decayed, vines, I'm sure, all over it. Whatever it was, it was destroyed. Had been for over a 100 years, yet that was the view from his window growing up, right? Was just that old palace that once had Julius Caesar, Augustus, these great men once ran the entire giant empire from it, and it's gone now. Now it's just this dusty old thing. And, And down the street was the Colosseum, right? And it was caved in, it's destroyed. If you've ever visited Rome, you've seen the Colosseum. Now, it's it's in ruins, right? And down the street, the other di- the other way was the old Circus Maximus. And, and for us, these are these old ancient ruins. For him, these are both, on the one hand, as a kid, it's probably like his playground, maybe. But on the other hand, these are the ruins of the empire that he was once a part of. You know, imagine living in uh, London or Washington, D.C., And you're across the street from the old broken down White House or the old Buckingham Palace, but it's fallen in. That's your that's your playground. That's what you go. That's what you go see every day. Right. You would just feel like you're living in the shadow of something once great. And and this was a time when Rome was under a lot of crisis. You know, his childhood, the year he was born, the city had a plague hit it that caused revolts and riots from people, you know, starving because of the food that was lost during the plague. And by the time it was done, one third of all the people in that region would die. And there was a war ravaging between the old Gothic tribes that ran Rome at the time and the people of Constantinople who were trying to take it over. When Gregory was nine, Rome would be taken and most of the citizens inside the city were killed. Gregory and his family likely had fled to their homes in Sicily during that time and then came back when it was safe to do so. That war would continue for five more years. He would be 14 or 15 before, you know, quote unquote, peace came to the city he grew up in. And when it did, Rome was no longer being run by the tribe king, you know, the Gothic peoples, but now it was being controlled by Constantinople far away. You know, we think of Rome, we usually think of this invincible Roman Empire that once crucified Jesus but ruled the whole area with an iron fist. We don't think of this ruined city just lying there destroyed from her former glory. That's what it would have been like for Gregory, though. Just unrest, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of death, a lot of suffering. And you're living in the shadow of what once was. Gregory did well in school. He was said to know Latin better than anyone his age. His family, well-connected, helped him to become a city 
administrator. He became very wealthy, and by the age of 30, he was a real up-and-comer. When his dad died around his mid-30s, he questioned everything and decided that he did not want to go that same road as others. He turned his home into a monastery, started studying scripture every day, and began to fast. He would later write, these were the best days of his life. But he also fasted too much. His health became ruined by this extensive fast and would actually lead to him dying younger than uh, he would have. When I heard that part of the story, I was really uh, blown away. Fasting is just something that I think as Christians in the West, and maybe I'm mistaken, but I think most of us have just forgotten, don't really spend a lot of time with. So to imagine a devout Christian who's fasting so much that it ruins their health, that is just something I think is very foreign to us today. And, And I'm not saying that we should do it, but it does make you question the spiritual discipline of fasting. Are we taking it seriously or not? That was just a thought I had as I was looking at this episode. Gregory's great skills running Rome and his devoutness really impressed the church at the time. Uh, They hired him to be one of the deacons who would run Rome. Uh, He did so well that he quickly rose through the ranks, you know, an up-and-comer. In 589, Rome was in trouble. This flood wiped out the grain reserves of Rome and caused a severe famine. The pope at the time died from the famine, and Gregory was seen as the best man to replace him. Now, Gregory tried to refuse the office, but but when he did accept it, he accepted it with gusto. And he went to work setting up relief for the famine and through careful management of the properties, and he was able to save the people from starvation. He then went after the proud priest that had run the city into the ground in his mind. He removed all, fa- all he found that was immoral, vain. He started enforcing the church rules like celibacy. He reorganized all the properties. He was selling and giving away any access they could give, and... This allowed both the church to have money again for the first time. It was no longer broke or on the faults, you know. Uh, but it also, people were starting to respect it again. They saw it as an institution that was really important. And at a time when Rome's own leadership was kind of failing, the church was stepping in to take place of that. But in 592, Rome was attacked by another group, the Lombards. Gregory negotiated a peace treaty with them when the Roman leaders failed to do so. The church had become so good at managing money that they were able to buy off the army and keep them from invading Rome. Wow. Yeah, I thought there was something funny about that. This idea of, oh no, an army's coming. Here, we're the church. We'll literally pay you to go away. And they and they did. You just you try to imagine that today. It's just kind of something you couldn't imagine happening, right? It's just such a strange thing. He's also famous for kind of being the first person to recognize a need in Britain and France of getting the gospel out. He... Uh, At the time, there was one bishop in all the British Isles, and this bishop came over to Britain because a woman got married. She was the queen of this little kingdom down there, and she was a Christian, and, and she was coming over from mainland Europe when she got married, and she said... I will, you know, I'll marry you. I will, I will be married to you, this pagan king up in this part of Britain. But under one condition, I need a bishop to come with me to give me communion, to take my confession. If I don't have that, I can't, you know, I can't stay a Christian. I can't marry you. They said, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll bring a bishop over. He was over there. His entire time he lived, he had one congregant. He was a pastor to one, and it was just this one queen, this one woman. When he died in 596. The queen sent a message basically back to Rome and said, hey, I need another bishop up here. Someone's got to, you know, take these rights from me. He was the only one and he died. And Gregory the Great saw something in that. He said, no, I think we can go even further, actually. I think think we're not going to just send you a bishop. We're going to send you a whole missionary force. We're going to bring Christianity to the British Isles and we're going to make that a Christian kingdom by the time we're done with it. And this was one of the first 
real missionary movements uh, where the church decided to send a bunch of people to one area just for the purpose of preaching the gospel to them. And it started in this mid-590s. Um, the last missionary who he sent out would die in the year 650. And by the time it was all over, that would go from a completely pagan, no one knew about God area to a Christian kingdom. And these missionaries had moved, had done so well at Effective in Britain, they had actually started to move down into France. They were moving through Germany and they were moving through Ireland. And they were people were giving up their old ways of doing things. It was uh, incredible. He was also considered an amazing preacher, really good preacher. Uh, he saw it as one of his most important, in fact, in the most important job. He said, before I'm a pope, before I'm a minister, the first thing I have to do is preach the gospel effectively in my sermons. And he would do preaching tours through Rome. He'd do even some preaching tours through Italy at the time. Uh, he just saw preaching God's word as even more important than any of his other duties as pope. And remember, he's leading missionary movements and paying off armies. Those are some pretty important duties. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the, in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. He's also where we get the Gregorian chants from. Yes, the style uh, we get the music Gregorian chant uh, comes from his desire. And, you know, Gregor, Gregorian, Gregory, anyway, you get it, uh, comes from his desire to see ma sacred music come about. He was an impressive man. He was considered the type, like he was the, the every future pope would be compared against him, Gregory the Great, because he was so good. In this sermon, The Mystery of the Resurrection, Gregory gave it with no notes. He really didn't prepare it beforehand. Uh, he was just going from his heart. And his only goal was to remind the audience to love the resurrection of Christ and to be aware of your future in Christ. It's been my custom, beloved brothers, to speak to you on many of the gospel readings by means of a sermon I had already dictated for you. But since I've been unable, because of the weakness of my throat, to read to you myself what I had prepared, I noticed that some among you listened somewhat indifferently. So, contrary to my usual practice, I will from now on make the effort during the sacred solemnities of the Mass to explain the gospel, not through a sermon I have dictated, by speaking, but by speaking directly to you myself. So for the future, it will be the rule for me to speak to you in this way, for the words which are spoken directly to sluggish souls awaken them more readily than a sermon that is read to them, moving them by that touch, as it were, of authority, so that they will listen with more attention. I am not, as I well know, competent to carry out this task, but show grace where my ignorance denies me, for I have in mind him who has said, Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. We all have in mind a good work, and it will be perfect perfected by his divine assistance. 
And also, this great Sunday of the resurrection is a fitting occasion to speak to you. For it would indeed be inappropriate that the tongue of our body should be silent in the praises that are due this day. For this is the day in which the body of our author rose again from the dead. You have heard, beloved, how the holy women who had followed the Lord came to his tomb, bringing with them sweet spices so that with tender affection they might tend to him in death whom they had loved in life. This tells us something which we should observe in the life of our holy church. It is important that we give attention to what took place here, to see what we might do to imitate them. We also, who believe in him who died, truly come with sweet spices to his tomb when we come seeking the Lord, bringing with us the sweet odor of virtue and the credit of good works. But these women who came bringing sweet spices saw angels, and this signifies that these souls, who, because of their holy love, came seeking the Lord and bearing the sweet spice of virtue, will also see the citizens of heaven. But let us hear what is said to the women who came. Do not be afraid. It is as though he said to them, Let them fear who do not love the coming of the heavenly citizens. Let them fear who, steeped in bodily desires, have no hope of belonging to them. But you, why should you fear meeting fellow servants of the Lord? Matthew also, describing the appearance of the angel, says of him, And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as snow. Lightning awakens dread and fear. The white radiance of snow is soothing. For Almighty God is both terrifying to sinners and comforting to those who are good. Rightly then is the angel, the witness of the resurrection, revealed to us with an appearance like the lightning, and his garments were white as snow, so that even by his appearance he might awaken fear in the reprobate and bring comfort to the just. And for the same reason there went before the Lord's people in the desert a column of fire by night and a column of smoke by day. For in fire there is fear, but in the cloud of smoke the comforting assurance of what we can see, day. Day, which also represents the life of the just, and night, the life of sinners. Because of this, Paul, speaking to converted sinners, says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5.8 So a pillar of cloud was set before them by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Because Almighty God will appear gentle in appearance to the just, but fearful to the wicked. Coming to judge us, he will comfort the one by the gentleness of his appearance and terrify the other with the severity of his justice. Now let us hear what the angel says. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus in the Latin tongue is saving, that is, savior. In those days, however, many were called Jesus by name, but not because of the reality it means. So of Nazareth is added by the angel to clarify which Jesus he is speaking about. And to this he adds the reason they seek him, who was crucified. And then he goes on, He is risen, he is not here. That he was not there was said only of his bodily presence. For nowhere is he absent in the power of his divinity. But go, he continues, tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee. Now we have to ask ourselves, why did he, speaking of the disciples, single out Peter by name? If the angel had not referred to him in this way, Peter would never have dared to appear again among the apostles. He's called by name to come so that he will not despair because of his denial of Christ. And here we must ask ourselves, why did Almighty God permit the one he had placed over the whole church to be frightened by the voice of a maidservant and even to deny Christ himself? This we know is a great dispensation of divine mercy, 
so that he who is to be the shepherd of the church might learn through his own fall to have compassion on others. God therefore first shows him to himself and then places him over others to learn through his own weakness how to deal mercifully with the weakness of others. And well did the angel say of our Redeemer that he goes before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. For Galilee means passing over. And now our Redeemer has passed over from his suffering to his resurrection, from death to life, from punishment to glory, from mortality to immortality. And after his resurrection, his disciples first see him in Galilee. And afterwards, filled with joy, we also will see the glory of the resurrection if we now pass over from the ways of sin to the heights of holy living. Therefore, he who is announced to us from the tomb is shown to us by crossing over. For he whom we acknowledge in the denial of our flesh is seen in the passing over of our soul. Because of the seriousness of the day, we have gone briefly over these points in our explanation of the gospel. Let us now speak in more detail of this same solemnity. There are two lives, one of which we knew, the other we did not know of. The one is mortal, the other immortal. The one linked with human infirmity, the other to incorruption. One is marked for death, the other for resurrection. The mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, came and took upon himself the one and revealed to us the other. The one he endured by dying, the other he revealed when he rose from the dead. If he had merely foretold of the resurrection of his body, but had not visibly shown it to us, who would believe in his promises? So, becoming man, he shows himself in our flesh. It was of his own will he suffered death. By his own power he rose from the dead, and by this proof he showed us that which he promises as a reward. But perhaps someone will say, well, of course he rose. For being God, he could not be held in death. So to give light to our understanding and to strengthen our weakness, he willed to give us proof and not of his resurrection only. For in that hour he died alone, but he did not rise alone from the dead. For it is written, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. He has therefore taken away the argument of those who do not believe. And let no one respond, no man can hope that that will happen to him which the God-man proved to us in his body. For here we learn that men did rise again with God, and we do not doubt that these were truly men. If then we are the members of our Redeemer, let us look forward to that which we know is fulfilled in our head. Even if we should lack self-confidence, we ought to hope that what we have heard of his worthier members will be fulfilled also in us, his lowliest members. And this brings to mind what the Jews, insulting the crucified Son of God, cried out, If he be the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Had he, yielding to their insults, then come down from the cross, he would not have proved to us the power of patience. He waited for the little time left. He took their insults. He submitted to their mockery. He continued patiently and evoked our admiration. And he who refused to descend from the cross rose again from the tomb. It was more important to rise from the tomb than to descend from the cross. It was a far greater thing to overcome death by rising from the tomb than it would have been to preserve life by descending from the cross. And when the Jews saw that despite their insults, he would not descend from the cross, and when they saw him dying, they rejoiced. They thought they had overcome him and caused his name to be forgotten. But now through all the world, his name has grown in honor because of the very death these faithless people thought would cause him to be forgotten. And he whom they rejoiced over as killed, they grieved over when he was dead. 
for they knew it was through death he had come to his glory. The deeds of Samson related in the book of Judges foreshadowed this day. When Samson went into Gaza, the city of the Philistines, they, learning he had come in, immediately surrounded the city and placed guards before the gates. And they rejoiced because they had Samson in their power. We know what Samson did next. At midnight, he took the gates of the city and carried them to the top of a hill outside. Who does Samson symbolize, beloved, in this, if not our Redeemer? What does Gaza symbolize, if not the gates of hell? And what are the Philistines, if not the deceitfulness of the Jews, who, seeing the Lord dead and his body in the tomb, place guards before it, rejoicing that they had him in their power? He who the author of life had glorified was now enclosed by the gates of hell. His killers rejoiced just as the Philistines had when they thought they had captured Samson in Gaza. But in the middle of the night, Samson came out from the city. He did not come empty-handed. He tore off the gates and carried them. Likewise, our Redeemer, rising before day, came free from hell and also destroyed the very gates of hell. He took away the gates and mounted with them to the top of a hill. By his resurrection, he carried off the gates of hell forever. By his ascension, he mounted to the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, let us love this glorious resurrection with all our hearts, and for love of it, let us be prepared to die. See how in the resurrection of our author we have come to know his ministering angels as our own fellow citizens. Let us be quick to join that great assembly of these fellow citizens. Since we cannot see them face to face, let us join ourselves to them in heart and desire. Let us cross over from evil doing to virtue, so that we may merit to see our Redeemer in Galilee. May Almighty God help us to, to that life which is our desire. He, he who for us delivered his only Son to death, Jesus Christ our Lord, who with him reigns one with the Holy Ghost, forever and ever. Amen. There's this part in the sermon where he talks about Jesus Christ being insulted while on the cross. And he says that by enduring that, he shows us patience. And, and it's something I don't think we think about. You know, you read the Gospels, we focus on the pain, the suffering, the nails through, the dying. And yeah, that would be really bad. But if you notice in all the Gospels, they also talk about Jesus being insulted on the cross. And just imagine if you're dying somewhere, a very painful, terrible death, and some ants come up to you and start making fun of you. I and mean, you're going to be pretty insulted, right? Of course, ants don't talk but you get the idea. This is Jesus Christ. He's the great God of all creation. And yet these humans that are killing him are making fun of him while they do it. And it, it's not like he's not God. With a, with a whisper of his words, even a, so much as a thought, I'm sure he could have eliminated them all with just a blink, right? They would have been gone. And he could have suffered and died for humanity's sins in some peace and quiet. But instead he chose to endure even the insults of these people to show us patience and to show us um, to show us how much you can love your enemies. I think it's a great model. It's not maybe one of the main points in the sermon, but it was one that stuck out to me. And if you haven't listened to our sermon by John Calvin, uh, talking about the passion of the Christ of the cross, he also mentions these insults and goes into detail there. And I think it's something that we should really think about and keep on our hearts as we think about what God endured for us.
If you enjoyed this episode, there's a special thanks to Jonathan Thede for reading this sermon. He's read multiple sermons of ours by now. Uh, just two examples off the top of my head. George Matheson, The Patience of Job. Fantastic sermon that he read for us. Uh, Johann Tauler, another sermon from a from a monk from the 1300s who survived the Black Plague. And he read that one for us too. Jonathan Thede is just a, a great speaker that we are always excited when he's on the show. Um, also, special thanks to Ben Yost. He has been helping edit sermons for us, helping us to get enough out and that they're ready so that they can get to our speakers and we can keep sermons coming out for you every single Thursday. This episode was edited, a uh, sermon was edited by Ben, so we're very grateful for him and all the help as we run Revive Devos and we run Revive Thoughts. Uh, a lot of time is being spent and we're really grateful for volunteers who are stepping up and uh, helping us get those kind of blocks and things done that we need done. Also thanking Dwayne for coming on the show. Uh, very excited to have him. He runs a great network. And again, if you haven't gone over and subscribed to the Bar Podcast, which has great interviews, and if you haven't subscribed to Just Thinking Podcast and all the other things on his network, we highly recommend you do so. It's a great resource full of great shows. This episode was a bit special because Joel and his wife just had a baby. And a very long time ago, Joel and I uh, used to run a different kind of podcast. And whenever... Uh, I had my first kid. I remember that he put out a little blurb to everybody that listened to our show and said, hey, send Troy an email, a message, something congratulating him on the birth of the kid. And I received exactly zero messages, and that's okay. That wasn't a very, uh, that show was not nearly as popular, obviously, as the shows we are currently doing. But I did want to put out there that if you want to congratulate Joel, you want to send him a little message, it would be appreciated. Better one or better a few than none. Um, we would love for you to send him a congratulations and to thank him for all he does on Revive Thoughts. You guys have no idea about all the behind the scenes stuff, editing. There is so much that goes on to making a podcast and Joel has the technical skills and the know-how and Revive Thoughts would not exist and it definitely would not be as high a quality a show if it weren't for the hard work that Joel does. So send him a thank you and congratulate him on his first child. He's very excited. Uh, and that will be awesome and wonderful. Uh, we thank you so much for listening to Revive Thoughts. This is Troy and Dwayne, and you were listening to Revive Thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.